You're listening to episode 380 of the GNU World Order. My name's Klaatu, and in this episode, we're going to do what we've been doing for the past couple of episodes, and that is go through every single software package installed by default on Slackware Linux. Now, if you're not running Slackware Linux, that's okay. You probably have access to the software that I'm talking about because it's open source, so you can probably just install it on whatever distribution of Linux you are running from your software repository, or if you're running BSD, or even if you're running Windows or Mac because it's open source and it's probably available for your platform. The applications that we're talking about today are, uh, well, they're, they're, they're in the AP package set, meaning that they're applications without a graphical interface implied. Uh, I don't think I've really come across any in this package set that have a graphical interface. I could be just blanking on one or two. I mean, like, Cups kind of has a graphical interface, but it's through a web browser. But in this episode, we're going to talk about QPDF. I'm going to talk about Radeon Tool for, like, ten seconds, because I know nothing about it. And then RPM, which is a really fun one. And maybe we'll get to something else. I don't know, but definitely those three. So let's get started. QPDF sounds if you if you're if you're familiar with linux application naming schemes it sounds deceptive qpdf to me sounds like it is a pdf viewer based on the qt that's qt toolset and that would be a perfectly acceptable application for it to be but it is not it's not at all that qpdf i don't actually know what it stands for let's let's check it out and see if the man page tells us man qpdf no it doesn't tell me so I thought maybe it meant query PDF, maybe that could be it, or maybe they just liked the way that the lowercase q and the lowercase p looked together, that, that, that is kind of nice. So QPDF, PDF transformation software, that's what it does, and the format of the command is QPDF, that's the, the name of the software, and then some options, the input file, and then the output file. It's pretty simple. So the idea is that this is going to convert one PDF file to another equivalent PDF file. But it has a bunch of options that you might be able to invoke on the way from one to the other. So to get the full uh, explanation, I guess, uh, dash dash help. QPDF dash dash help. And actually I'm going to do that again. I'm going to pipe it through most. And there we go. So it opens up uh, telling us that the basic options include dash dash password equals the password, dash dash linearize uh, to generate a linearized, that is web optimized file, dash dash copy dash encryption, copy the encryption parameters from a specified file, dash dash encryption file password equals then some password. So you can tell that this is going to this is going to work on whatever PDF you throw at it, whether it's password protected or not. You can also set properties in a PDF, again, from, from one PDF to another. On the way of copying the data from one PDF to the one that you're transforming it into, you can set properties. So, for instance, and these are silly properties to me, personally. Maybe you'll have a use for them, I do not. But there are things like dash dash print, and then you can tell it yes or no, Y or N, and that will allow printing of the PDF. Dash dash modify equals yes or no, allow document modification. Dash dash extract, allow text and graphic extraction. Dash dash annotate, allow comments and form fill-in and signing. So you're sort of like unlocking these stupid features that are, that are just arbitrary. Well, not arbitrary, but they're, they're, they're those annoying quote-unquote features of a software package where the minute someone throws it in front of you, the only thing you can think of is, how do I destroy this? How do I get rid of it? How do, how do I get around this? That's, 
kind of how I feel about most PDFs in general, much less the PDFs that, that, that block you from doing something that obviously you should be able to. Now, I understand there are different requirements for different uh, tasks, different jobs, and sometimes you do need PDFs that, I, I guess, that people can't print. I, I don't know why you would need that, because I, I would imagine you having a PDF, you know, if you gave me a PDF that I couldn't print, and I found out that it wasn't being, that I couldn't print it, I would immediately just, at, at, if nothing else, I would take screenshots of each page and then print each page just to have said that, that I've done it. That's just, you know, that's just, that's how, that's what I think about that kind of technology. Now, I understand, though, that there's probably there's probably a need for this, or or else it wouldn't exist. I guess I don't, I don't know that I agree with it either way, but I understand that that my use case and my personal uh, beliefs over digital information isn't it doesn't apply to everything. So if you need those features, if you need to act, activate or deactivate those features, then QPDF may be able to help you. So there are a lot of different options for that sort of thing, which again I don't have a whole lot of interest in. And so I'm not going to go over like every single, you know, the, 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 the fine grain controls that you have over, over how you allow it to be printed, whether it's full or only low resolution and, and so on. So these are just, these are, these are f switches that you're flipping in the PDF data that gets written out into whatever, you know, output.pdf that you're generating by passing it through QPDF or by processing it with P QPDF. You can also allow certain pages to be selected from from one or more PDF if you're constructing, um, uh, you know, if you're sort of combining PDFs. And this this could be useful. I don't use this for that task, but mostly because I didn't know this existed until I was looking at the next couple of applications that I had to cover, you know, within two weeks. And so I discovered this one. And this is kind of nice. So let's say we've got, I've got a, um, got a couple of PDFs here that I should be able to to do this on. So if I do QPDF, and the, the syntax is a little bit weird, and I'm gonna I, I will I will readily admit admit that I do not love the syntax, and that that'll probably keep me from using this in real life, to be honest. So apparently, arbitrarily, I need to give it a file name. I don't exactly know why, because I'm gonna give it the same file name in a minute to define which page I want. So anyway, I'm gonna go. Let's do PowerTop because that's the a PDF that I have. And I know that was something like 10 pages. So then I'm going to do, so QPDF, PowerTop underscore users underscore guide dot PDF dash dash pages. And I'll do one, now let's do three, no, let's do one comma, and then we'll do like four to five, four dash five. So that's defining the page. I, I want the, the one, page one, that'll be the cover. And then just randomly four to five, I'll, I'll also take those those pages. Now I need to tell it another PDF. So here is a uh, here's a stats.pdf. So I'll grab that. I don't know how many pages that is, so I'm just going to grab page one from that. And then dash dash blah.pdf. And that didn't work, probably because of that comma. It should have worked. So instead, I'm just going to take one to five. Oh no, I know why. Because I forgot to give it the, the 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 name of the the name of the PDF. So the full command: qpdf powertop.pdf dash dash pages powertop.pdf one comma four to five and then stats.pdf one dash dash blah dot pdf. So in other words, for some reason, you have to give qpdf an input file name. 
not not all of the input file names, just one of the input files that you want to deal with, you give it that, or else this will error out. And then you do dash dash pages, which is the option to tell it, hey, I'm telling you a page range now. So then you give it an input file again, one that you want to select pages from. So in this case, that's powertop again, .pdf, and then the pages that you want to extract. So in, in, in this example, I'm doing one and then four and then five. And then you give it the next PDF that you want it to extract pages from. So in this example, stats.pdf. And I only, I can only, I, I wouldn't swear to more than one page being in that PDF. So we'll just extract page one from that. And then you have to tell it, okay, that's, that's it. Stop. And you do the dash dash trick to sort of like terminate options. And then you give it the output file name. So I've just done that. And now I'm going to open up blah.pdf in xpdf. And it looks like, yes, I've got, I've got a four page document. And the first one is the power top cover page. That's obvious to see. Four is page four from that manual. Five is page five from that manual. And then the, the final one is this stats document that I happened to have in, in this demo directory. So it, it worked as designed. Um, this previously, the only way I knew to do that work was with a PDF TK. That's PDF Toolkit, which honestly has since kind of, for me, been displaced by PDF TK-Java, which is well worth looking at. It's not include. It's neither of those are included. I don't think in Slackware. I used to use PDF TK. Well, I, I use PDF TK all the time. I used to use it all the time uh, on all systems, and then on Fedora, something broke between PDFTK and I, I think it must have been a lib poplar or something like that, and I could not get PDFTK to install on Fedora, but someone has re-implemented the whole thing in, in Java, and so now it just works everywhere again, so it's, it's really great. So check that out if you do a lot of uh, slicing and dicing of PDFs. But QPDF apparently does it as well. Like I say, that syntax is really weird, and I'm not 100% sure that I'll remember it. But then again, I don't know. It is, you know, once you once you figure it out, it's not that bad. So um, that's cutting up a PDF with QPDF. And there are other options, too. It'll do the, it'll do fancy things like collate QPDF dash dash collate odd dot PDF dash dash pages odd dot PDF even dot PDF dash dash all dot PDF. And then you've got all of your pages collated between the odds and the even. And once again, that, that syntax of like, hey, I'm going to randomly throw a file name at an option, and then I'm going to pass another option that requires that same, that same file name. I mean, it really does not make this what I would call intuitive. In fact, I would, I would even go so far as to say possibly that it's counterintuitive. I'm sure there's a very good reason that, for it, though. Like, in, in terms of, like, hey, we had to do it this way because we're using this programming language and it makes sense for what we're doing. And if we, if we require a file name here and then that same file name there, then we don't have to worry about whether an option is sometimes a Boolean and then sometimes not. It's just really, e it's a lot easier to parse that way, so just deal with it. I'm fine with that. I think it's really cool that, P that QPDF just has been sitting on my computer for I don't know how long, and I just never really, uh, really, really noticed it. And so, yeah, it's a useful little toolkit, but I mean, this, I don't know what, I, what I'm about to tell you is going to, has blown my mind, and it's probably going to blow your mind. It's kind of hilarious, but um, this is, I mean, if you need proof, I can let me know, and I'll, I'll sit down with you and, and show you that this actually works, but Here's this QPDF thing, and I cannot swear that this is going to work for everything. It's just something random 
that I discovered. So I don't generally have PDFs that are password protected. That's not really a world that I have to deal with uh, on a normal, on a regular basis. Most of the PDFs that I do get in real life on a day-to-day basis, well, it wouldn't be day-to-day, but, you know, on a weekly basis, would be um, related to role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, that sort of thing. That market, the digital market for those, is is just steeped in PDF format. And that's largely, I think, because a lot of their actual targets are books, actual physical books that you buy from a store and put on your bookshelf. Um, and since PDF is uh, it has grown from PostScript, which is the language of printers, uh, the graphical language of printers, uh, it just it that's what proofs are done in. When you after you're lay after you're done with the layout of a book, you send it to your printer as a PDF, and they print it from that PDF. So it's pretty trivial then to take that book layout and just leave it as a PDF and sell the PDF online. And that's what a lot of people do. So a lot of times when you're getting, if you get into that hobby and you're, you're doing it digitally, which a lot of, a lot of people are doing now, you'll end up with PDFs, more PDFs than you want. And sometimes some of those PDFs are password protected. I understand why they do that because I mean, I'm, I'm assuming I understand. I, I assume that it's got something to do with protecting, you know, ensuring that they get income for the product that they've released. And I, I understand that, and that goes back to what I was saying about those funky little switches in the pu- the, the PDF format that QPDF enables. I, I understand that there's a, a place for that. But if I've purchased the PDF, sometimes there's something in there that I want to, for instance, print out. And I mean, all the PDFs that I've bought, as far as I know, will let me print out, uh, print print a page out. But uh, in some cases, what I really want to do is take a map uh, or, or a, an, an asset, without getting into too many details about tabletop <laughs> gaming uh, things, uh, I'll, I'll take an, a page and I want to like cut it out, like cut out the part, just the part that I want to print. I don't want all the text around it or the fancy backgrounds that they would have had. You know, if you bought the the physical media, it would have all the stuff in the background. I don't want that. I specifically just want this part because I want to save on ink or whatever. And what the password protection often does is it blocks me from being able to do that. It doesn't let me then import just page five where the map is into Inkscape so I can mask out all the junk around it, or maybe I want to put numbers on the map and um, so that I can keep track of stuff, you know, whatever. It doesn't let me do that. So that's that's been a problem, uh, and in order to get around that, you basically have to crack the PDF. So, funny story, and again, I've only tested this on a couple of PDFs, but so far it has worked, and the, the thing that has worked is if I go to QPDF, and I feed it qpdf space dash dash decrypt. I mean, this seems too easy already, right? And then path to the encrypted PDF that I want to remove encryption from. And then output.pdf, it just runs without complaint, which I thought at the time, I thought, well, that's too good to be true. That, that cannot possibly have worked. It must have done something and failed to tell me that it did the thing. Uh, nope. XPDF output.pdf. There's the PDF in all of its glory, just as I left it. Except, presumably, without any of the encryption. Can this be possible? Well, let's look. Let's test it out. I happen to know that uh, PDF TK would not allow me to split up an encrypted PDF. So let's pretend, again, that the map that I want to print 
is on page 5. So I'll do pdftk output.pdf cat5. I guess that was a weird choice, actually, page 5, cat5. Uh, anyway, cat5, and then we'll do output, uh, and then we'll just do, we'll call it map.pdf. And it did it. Now if I do that same thing on, on the original encrypted PDF, just t to test it here, original PDF, cat5, output, map.pdf. It gives me an error. It says, errors encountered, no output created, owner password required but not given, or incorrect. So it definitely just stripped the encryption out of the PDF without the password. That, I mean, that this can't work for every PDF, right? Like, that cannot be possible. But for my purposes, this exactly this does exactly what I need it to do. All I need now is a qpdf command to detect encryption so that I can loop over my entire folder of purchased RPG PDFs and strip out all encryption so that I don't have to do this like every time I encounter it. That would be brilliant. And it's it's just sitting here on my computer and it has been all this time. So I don't know if that's a a known feature. I don't know if that's a feature that is intended, but boy is it nice. And now I can take that map into Inkscape, I can mask out all the the junk around it, and then print it on my printer and not use up half as much ink as I would have had to do otherwise. It's brilliant. So that is QPDF. Try it out if you need to remove encryption from PDFs apparently, or also just slice and dice that that's always useful as well those those two things make that application honestly those two things make the price of slackware completely worth it for me being able to cut up pdfs and decrypt them that makes the what did i spend on slackware 50 bucks whatever it costs for slackware that makes it totally worth it that just that program alone for as much as i do it you know like every weekend when i when i play my game on Sunday, I'm I'm doing exactly this. I'm 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 cutting up a PDF for for quick, re you know, to, to just slim down what I what I actually need for that gaming session. So I'm not flipping through, you know, a hundred pages or something. I just want the that one chapter so that I I don't have to as much as to deal with. Or or I'm printing out a map for reference or something like that. QPDF has made Slackware 100% worth the 49 bucks that I paid for it or whatever I paid for it. Okay. Next up, let's talk about Radeon Tool. Radeon Tool is a configuration application for ATI, as it was, as it used to be called, but I guess now it's probably AMD, um, for a AMD cards. And it has about, uh, nine options. There's debug, there's skip, uh, one, like skip equals and then some integer, and, and that would say, okay, well, don't use this Radeon card, use the next one. Or you could do skip two, and then you'd skip the first two, and so on. DAC, on or off, that's power down the external video outputs. Light, on or off, power down the backlight. Stretch, on, off, vertical, horizontal, so that's stretching for uh, resolution mismatch on your on your display. I don't know that I ever fully understood how sort of graphics got onto the screen for a very, very long time until I started building my own computers. That was the thing that really made it, like, really made it all come together. Because if you're just a, a person with a laptop or a, a, a tower that you built, that you uh, bought off the shelf of a store, then sort of all you see, you see the computer, and then you look for the video outputs, and all you know is that if you attach the, this cable 
to that to that port, then magic happens. Something pops up onto your screen. And if it doesn't look good enough, then you understand that, well, first you, you think, okay, well, I just need to go to settings and adjust the resolution or something. And then if that doesn't work, or if the, you know, the maximum resolution is like 1024 by 768, then you, you, you realize, oh, okay, I need to install a driver. And so then you install a driver and then somehow more magic happens and then the the image is produced. And it wasn't until I started building my own computer that I kind of realized how it was all happening. On towers, which I think is probably the best way to kind of comprehend it, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, that motherboard part, the the big circuit board that you put into the tower, there's a little chip on that. And a lot of times it's by either AMD or Intel. Sometimes it's by some other manufacturer. It doesn't have to be one of those. It could be... um, what are, what are some of the others? Was the one that I was thinking of, VIA or something like that? But yeah, so they exist. There's a little chip on there. And out of that chip, or, you know, attached to that chip eventually, there's a, uh, a video output port. And if you plug a cable into that output port, then it sends a digital signal to activate pixels on your display. And that's working. The thing about those little chips is that they're rather limited in how much they can process. And so they're designed, I mean, by design, they are limited, because people know that if they make them very, very capable, very powerful, then, well, the chip, you know, it probably needs to be bigger, or it needs more memory, or it needs something to take the heat away from it, because now you're you're crunching lots and lots of numbers and sending a lot of electricity through there, and the heat starts to build up, and so on. So those, those built-in chips... If there is a built-in chip, they, they tend to be designed to be relatively low-powered. There's not a whole lot of data rushing through there. It's, it's, it's sort of, it's designed to be kind of a basic output. And, and if that's all you need, like all you need the computer to do is like maybe give you a basic graphical interface, if that, then that's, that's often all you'll, all you need. And, and then that's great because now you, all you've done is you've paid for a motherboard and you haven't had to go spend the extra money on a graphics card. If you do go out and buy a separate card, then you've got this card, you've got a graphics chip on that card that maybe is a little bit more than what was set into the motherboard. Maybe it's a little bit more powerful, maybe. Maybe not. I mean, if it's a 30-buck card, then it's probably basically the same thing. It's just on a separate card, um, and same chip, different card. So you slot that in there, and now you've got a different output in the back of your computer. Now, the cool thing is, if you have two monitor outputs in the back of your computer, that, that doesn't mean that they're redundant. You can actually, potentially, put a cable into each of those outputs and put those cables into two separate monitors, and now suddenly you have two monitors showing you a feed of of your computer. And you're, and Linux is smart enough, and, and most operating systems now are, smart enough to recognize that those are two cables attached to the same computer Therefore, you know, it's it's basically getting the same kind of set of information. And then it's up to the graphic layer of your computer. And this, in, in Slackware's case, that's X11 or Zorg or X um, or X-Free86 if you go far that, far enough back. Um, then you, that, it's up to that graphical layer. On modern Linux, it would be Wayland or, or more modern Linux. I mean, Slackware 14.2 is modern Linux, but something very cutting edge, it would be Wayland. It's up to that graphics layer to to recognize that, okay, these two signals are being sent. You know, there's two there's two out- graphical outputs, so I'm going to send one desktop to one of them and another desktop to another, and and those will be two unique spaces 
workspaces for the for my user and you can usually configure that in in one of you know several different ways sometimes they are distinct desktops sometimes they're just one big long desktop that sort of spans both windows both both monitor windows as it were it just it depends on how you and your graphical uh com- your, your gra- graphic layer kind of interact and set things so to get even fancier now you could buy a really powerful graphics card and add it to your computer and have yet another output or maybe that would be your primary output that's generally what i do i get a really nice graphics card and i have one monitor because for some reason i don't know i just very used to one monitor and not used to lots of monitors lots of monitors are nice i will admit that but um they do take up a lot of room so yeah you can do that you have lots of monitors or you can have one card and just use that as your primary card. And sometimes a card has multiple outputs, so you, you've got that option. Um, now those, the bigger cards, they usually have a, a bigger chip on them, a more powerful chip, and it usually generates heat. And so you'll see graphic cards with like fans on them, like fans just for the graphic part. And you'll, you'll definitely see that on you know a gaming computer or something like that because the the CPU of your computer might be generating a considerable amount of heat but boy those graphic cards they they they're like a whole other computer on on a card i mean they really are they're they're really really powerful um computational devices uh, they just happen to have as their primary output they're they're outputting graphical data and the driver that you may or may not need to install for a graphics card or a graphics chip is simply a way for the linux kernel to talk to that graphics chip because most graphic chips have well i think all graphic chips now have as a built-in sort of lowest denominator format something called vesa I'm assuming it's pronounced Visa. I've I've never actually heard it pronounced. Uh, and this is different from the Visa mounting spec for like monitors and televisions and so on. This is a driver, the Visa Vesa Visa driver. Uh, and this is distributed. Uh, the, the Visa driver Vesa driver is distributed by X by X11 the the free desktop folks. It is a generic video uh, driver for basically all cards i guess maybe not all of them but there's a standard uh you know set of information that a graphics card is going to output and this driver can tap into that and interpret it and display it on your screen the downside to that driver that magical driver is that it may only have it may only be bringing in an 800 by 600 resolution display because anything more powerful than that then you need to know more details about what exactly that card is feeding out is outputting but for the VESA core, uh, there's a standard output, and this driver that ships. If you've installed X, then you've installed this driver, and that just the the benefit there is that when you plug in a monitor to Linux, or like you plug in a a display into your Linux box, you get a display, you get a picture. It might not be pretty, it might be the the resolution may be comically low, but you do get an image, an an image, and that's important for for lots of different reasons. I mean. A lot of tools on Linux are just easier to sort of interface with over over a graphical interface. I mean, not necessarily. You can usually use them without. Hopefully, you can. Um, but some of the low level or the yeah, I guess low level things are really just they're easier if you do it over the graphical display, like getting a network up and running, a network card rather up and running. In in the graphical display, it's like a click of the network manager 
selecting the the right card and then you're online whereas in a terminal you're going to have to probably well you'll have to figure it out you know what do you do do you activate network manager and then use nmcli to uh, list your connections and well list your devices list your connections and then connect or activate one of those connections uh, or or do you just go with iwconfig and ifconfig i mean how how would you do it it's it's up to you so the, the the graphical sort of the the default the fallback to graphics is kind of it's a it's a feature it is nice it's a nice to have and if you've got that set up then you've got sort of a, a pretty reliable way of getting an image on a computer and for a lot of people that's that's kind of a source of a lot of sort of comfort and I don't mean that in a sarcastic way I mean really it it is comforting to see okay I am 70% of the way there I've got Linux installed and I've got a display the display is comically low res but that i think i can fix and you can usually it's usually involved it usually involves installing a driver that will talk to your graphics card or graphics chip in on a more advanced level and that's not so hard usually it's usually just looking in your software repository or in the case of slackware you can just go down download the the driver like if it's an nvidia driver or whatever amd's driver is these days you get it from slackbuilds.org you build your own kernel you install nvidia you know whatever however you want to do it it's something that you can do and fix all of that has almost nothing to do with radeon tool i just wanted to go over that because i think it's useful to get a little bit of context sometimes Radeon tool I've never used. I will probably never use it because honestly, I kind of avoid AMD slash ATI graphic cards. I've had bad experiences with them in the past. I have not tried them lately. It's been six years since I've tried one. Maybe they've gotten a lot better. That's the Radeon tool. Okay, let's talk coffee. I am going to go get some coffee and you really ought to yourself as well because after the coffee break, we're going to go over RPM. That is the RPM package manager. stands for literally the RPM Package Manager. It is a recursive acronym developed by Red Hat as a way, a means of making the process of installing packages easier on the user. And it would do that by keeping track of what was or was not installed on your system. Now I'm going to mention here that I don't have a, a very historical background or context for RPM. I By the time I started using Linux, yum was a thing already, and, and yum abstracted a whole lot of the RPM experience away from the user. So as I understand it, and I'm going to kind of gloss over this pretty quickly in case I'm very, very wrong, and I urge you that if... if so on Slackware, for instance, and this would have been true for early Linux as I understand, on Slackware you can install software, let's say, two different ways. There are more ways, but let's let's sort of say, okay, two common ways of Slackware software installation. You can go grab the source code, you compile it, you turn it into a package, you install the package and you're done. So it's what four four different steps or so five, four or five different steps. It depends on you know how you're defining steps, but also it depends on if you're using a front end because certainly Slack builds does a lot of the work for you, 
Uh, and then if you use a front end for Slack builds, then you've got something like SBOPKG doing all the work for you practically. So it can be very, very fast. It can be very quick and transparent, or it can be very manual. Either way, not a big deal. But in that process, if you've ever compiled code, then you'll know that when you're compiling code, this code is being translated, this, this code that was typed by a human is being translated into machine language. And in order for it to do that correctly, sometimes a code, the, the compiler has to has to have a library available to it, some some other code, some code that someone else wrote. And the compiler takes a little bit of code from there, and that library, and and, and combines it to with with the stuff, or, or puts it into the code that it's compiling over here, and so on. And that that's what that's what's happening during that co that code compile process. Now, if you are trying to compile code, for instance, that makes great use of libfoo, and you don't have libfoo installed on your system, specifically the development headers of libfoo, usually, then the compile will fail. It will, it will stop compiling, because at some point that compiler is looking out on your system in some predefined directories that generally on Linux, that's where we keep our libraries, like slash USR slash lib64, or slash lib64, or slash user slash local slash lib64, or whatever it might be. It's going out there, searching that those paths, and it's not finding a lib foo. And so it can't pull the code that it needs in order to sort of complete that puzzle that the source code is that needs lib foo. And obviously we do this as as programmers because it is easier to simply reuse code out of libfoo than to reinvent the wheel and, and rewrite everything ourselves in our own code. That, that's one of the ways that code works. It's, what, it's the reason that it's modular. And of course, with open source, you have, you have the opportunity to do that a lot because there's so much that you're allowed to pull from. So during the process of, of compiling, the, the compiler will stop if it cannot find the dependencies, the code that it depends on. It will stop and it will tell you sometimes in a very clear way and sometimes with just a, a weird looking error that takes you a lot of research to understand what it means, but it'll tell you that you don't have libfoo, and, and then you know, oh, I, I gotta go install libfoo now. And like I say, sometimes that is, is literally, cannot find libfoo. Oh, well that's easy, so I need to install li libfoo. And other times it's a little bit more cryptic, because it just stops, and it says, cannot find, I don't know, IEC underscore FFO dot something. And, and then you have to, you have to think, oh, well, what provides whatever I just said, and how do I get it? And then you have to do a little bit of research to figure out why that thing broke when it was trying to do this action, you know, and, and, and it leads you back, ideally, eventually, to the fact that you needed libfoo. And then you go read the readme file that you ignored, and you realize it says right at the top of the top of the document, requires libfoo. Okay, so that's that's compiling from source code. The other way is to just go go grab a package that someone has already done all of that before you, and packaged it up, and put the package online. That's called uh, getting a binary distribution, or, or sometimes just called the software package. And for Slackware, you would you would go to some place that had Slackware binaries on it, like Alien Bob's uh, server. He keeps he he compiles a bunch of stuff like KDE and VLC and Handbrake and probably a bunch of other stuff that I'm not thinking of. Qubit Torrent, uh, yeah, lots of stuff, right? He he puts it on his server, and you can go get it. It's pre-compiled. It is done already. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Now, the thing about Slackware, and this is how it's an example for RPM, the thing about Slackware is that on 
when you're compiling that source code, you get those warnings, right? Whether you understand them or not, you get warnings that that it's telling you, hey, you don't have libfoo installed, you need to do that, or I won't work. I cannot compile this code. You cannot launch this program until you get libfoo, come back and compile this, and then you can install it and launch it. So the, the, that's sort of dependency checking for you. It's it's not super friendly, I guess, it, it, and, and the way I'm describing it, certainly it is a little bit of trial and error, but it does work. Whereas for Slackware, the binary install, if you point Slack pack, a Slack PKG at a Slack package, you know, um, bar dash 1.0.0 x86 underscore 64 dot TGZ, TGZ or TXZ or whatever, then it'll install that. It, it basically, it unarchives it and puts all those files in the package on your system in the, in the corresponding, um, positions. And it, it never checks any kinds of, de- any kind of dependency. So you may install this bar or BAS program, whatever it is, and then you go to launch it and then it errors out. It says, hey, I, can't launch. And maybe it'll tell you, can't find libfoo.so or something like that. Or maybe it'll just crash and you'll have to once again kind of investigate. Well, why did it, why did it tell me it couldn't launch? And a couple of different ways you can do that. You can do LDD on the binary that you were trying to launch to see what kind of libraries it links out to and so on. But the, there was no, there was nothing stopping you from installing that package, even though you didn't have libfoo installed on your system. And that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing because you might think, cool, I just installed all the packages I need, but the, and, and you actually didn't, and, and that could be annoying, but I mean, it, it really is quite nice when you're, let's say, rebuilding a system and you have all the packages in a directory that, that, that is, you know, that, that, that's the standard package collection for, for the systems that you're building. You can just point install PKG at that directory and say, all of the T question mark Zs in that directory, make them be on the system. And as long as you know that that's a sane collection that interacts each with each other and, and resolves each other's dependencies successfully, then by the time they're on the system, everything works. So RPM is kind of in the middle. RPM, generally speaking, unless you're getting a source RPM, is a binary distribution. So it's like that TGZ or TXZ or whatever that you've downloaded from Alien Bob or, or Slack only or whatever. You're, you you grab the RPM, you go to install it with RPM, RPM dash dash install, and RPM checks to verify whether or not it's sensible for you to install that RPM. And if it is not, then it doesn't at least by default, it does not allow you to install the package because it, it knows that it will not function. It knows that it will not be able to successfully run whatever is contained in that RPM uh, until you install the, the whatever is missing. So it, it's acting a little bit like a source code compile process even though it's it's binary. And I have to kind of say that that's both good and bad because on one hand, it's good because that way you're not fooling yourself. You 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 know exactly what you need to do to make this thing work. So for instance, if I if I'm on Slackware and I pull down an RPM for ARIA 2C, that's a um a downloader. It's quite a nice downloader. Like wget but multi-threaded or yeah, I guess you could say multi-threaded. I don't know if it's Multi-threaded? What, is there another term for that? I don't know. Uh, so if I do rpm dash dash install aria2c dash asterisk rpm, 
hit return. Uh, it does not install it for me. And it tells me that it needs libc.so.six and, and a bunch of other things. So it's, it's telling me straight away that this isn't going to work if I install it. Now, here's the thing about RPM. RPM is kind of an all or nothing system. So RPM, I, I can, uh, in fact, let me, let me look at what kind of libc I actually do have in my system. What would that be? Um, glibc or something like that? Or libc? Yeah, libc.so.6. So if I look in ls, or if I list slash lib64 slash libc.so, uh, well, if I look in lib64 slash libc asterisk, then I see that the libc version that I am running on this Slackware computer is libc.so.6. And that is exactly what this ARIA2C RPM just warned me that I did not have. Was it incorrect? Well, not really. It is, it's correct. I do not have the glibc RPM installed on my system. Do I have libc installed? Why, yes, I do. But it's outside the RPM system. I did not install it through RPM. So RPM is more or less useless on Slackware because no matter what you try to install through RPM, it will it will not recognize what you have on your system as as valid. So in order, if you if you really wanted to use RPM, I don't even know if this is possible. You really wanted to know uh, to to use it, you would have to install at least like well, I mean probably everything that you see in the A package set of Slackware, you'd have to install, not everything, all those AAA ones in the A package set, you'd have to install with RPM, such that then you could install the RPMs that depend on those obvious things. Like, libc is practically pretty much always going to be an unresolvable but required dependency for whatever you try to do. And I even tested that out. So, I have a little script. It's just a bash script. It's called Trashy, and it is a trash command for your terminal, which I highly recommend. You should never, ever, ever use the rm command ever again in your life. Uh, I could, I could talk more about that at some point. I'm sure I probably will. And it's a bash script. This Trashy thing. It's, it's not fancy. It is, it's, it's well, it is. I mean, it's a big script. But in terms of what it requires to have on your system, not a whole lot. It's a very basic RPM. It's probably a really nice little RPM to learn how to build RPMs from because it does use all the sort of the really basic features of, of RPM and, and RPM build. Uh, but anyway, so I, I put it onto this, um, I brought the RPM over onto this Slackware machine, and it is um, an RPM built for Red Hat Linux 8. But there is a source package, a source RPM for it as well. And a source RPM is an RPM, but it is a, an RPM that hasn't really been built yet. I mean, it's an, an RPM that's been built in the sense it, it, it's an RPM. But if, if you wanted to, you know, the, the process of installing the source RPM would require that RPM to to compile the code. They're, they're kind of nice, um, but they, they are a little bit more, they're a little bit more, um, there, there are more steps involved, but what they're primarily used for, I believe, is such that is so that you can, as a user, rebuild the the source RPM to create a valid RPM for your system, but still retain the benefits of hey, I've compiled this myself on my on my system, whatever that might be. Uh, and I I've done it, I've had to do it a couple of times, and I don't for the life of me remember what the impetus was. But let's just pretend like I don't know. 
for some reason you've got libfoo 4.0 on your system, and the package that you want to install was written with libfoo, well, 3 or 5 in mind, then you might have to rebuild so that it would then build against libfoo 4 instead of 3 or 5. Now, in practice, there's a little bit of wiggle room there because, technically speaking, sometimes... Well, no, RPM wouldn't let you, so I think, yeah, I think you would have to possibly rebuild that. I was going to say, sometimes the, the, the binary would still actually work on the system, depending on the, the ABI difference between libfoo 4 and 5 or 3 or whatever, but the RPM would stop you because it would see that you don't have libfoo, whatever I said, installed as an RPM. So you could do RPM, re, uh, RPM build dash dash rebuild, and then the path to the source RPM, which I'll do right now. So first of all, on a system, uh, on to, to get sort of RPM up and running, you need to run, I think just RPM, just literally the command RPM. Or maybe it's RPM build. Yeah, it's RPM build. Sorry, um, RPM build. And this creates at least as as of the version of RPM that we're using on Slackware. Running RPM build creates what's called the RPM tree, or the RPM build tree, whatever. And that is a directory simply called RPM build, and it's located in your home directory. So now that I've run RPM build, I have a directory called RPM build. So I'll go into RPM build, and I'll look around. And you'd think it would be an empty directory, but it's not. It's a whole whole system in here. So there's a folder called build, build root, RPMs, sources, specs, and SRPMs. Build is the place where things get built to. Uh, they get copied out of build eventually, but that's kind of the, uh, the working directory to construct the RPM. Let me see if I'm getting this right. And then build root is the place where things go to be compiled, I think. I could be getting this a little bit wrong, so don't go quote me. But yeah, build and build root. One of those two, I think it's build root, you go to to sort of find out what broke. You know, you go there for your half-built project, essentially. That's, um, I, I know that I've been to build root for that a, a number of times. Okay, so then there's RPMs. Well, those are the, the completed RPMs. And in there, there's going to be a potentially a no arch directory and then whatever architecture you're 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 on right now like a x86 underscore 64 no arch being things that are architecture independent and are marked as such and then the the architecture dependent ones are obviously labeled there's sources that's where the source code for that that is required for the rpm to 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 build uh that's where the source code goes so if you're building a package for uh, libfoo, then you'd put the libfoo source code in sources, and then you would build your your little build script. And in Slackware, we would call that a a Slack build script. But for this, this is an RPM build script, and they call it a spec file. S P E C spec file. Spec files go into specs. That's the that's the fifth one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, the fifth directory over here. And then finally, there's S R P M S, and that's where source R P M S go. So if you've got an a source RPM, or if you're using one of the RPM tools to grab source RPMs, then you can put them in SR, SRPMs and, and rebuild them from there. So a lot of this is kind of like self, it, it maintains itself mostly. I, you, you don't you don't tend to go into these directories all that often. Well, I mean, into RPMs you probably go frequently because that's where your final your finished product is. But everything else, it's kind of it kind of maintains itself to be honest. So now that we've got RPM build, in theory, we could go into, let's say, our SRPMS, and we could do a wget or, or a... There used to be, a, on, 
On some systems, there are some really handy... I don't think there is here. Yeah, on RHEL and Fedora these days, there's a tool chain called RPM Dev, uh, and I think spec tools. Uh, and both of those are really useful because they have commands that will just really quickly grab things from here and there. But anyway, so we're just going to do a um, wget... Uh, no, we're going to do a secure copy because I actually have it on my home server. So I'm going to secure copy this trashy RPM, but the source one, so asterisk src asterisk RPM, and copy it to this directory. And so now I've got a source directory in my srpms folder. And now I can do an rpm build dash dash rebuild, and then I'll give it the path to srpms trashy source and then hit return and so now it's it's taking this little source rpm and it's exploding it i think i think it puts the i'll verify but i'm i'm pretty sure that it puts the sources in the sources directory yes it does and the spec file in the spec directory so that's kind of exploded the rpm it hasn't installed the rpm it's just it's taken it apart. It's decoupled it from being an RPM package, and it's taken the source code and put it into a sane location. It's taken the spec file, put it into a nice place, and then all that while, because I used RPM dash dash rebuild, it is also ha it it's using the assets that it's just put into those directories. And once it is finished, and it's not going to finish. Okay, so Trashy um, defines in the spec file. So I'll look in the spec file here. Trashy .spec, Trashy uh, defines that it requires bash to run. Uh, bash or zsh or T tcsh uh, in order to run. So again, because RPM wants to see those RPMs installed, we, we need to remove that requirement. And this is, a, like I say, this is a really simple RPM. So you can imagine something with more than just one, one requirement. So I'm going to strike that line altogether from my, my spec file, and then do an RPM rebuild again, or RPM build dash dash rebuild, do that, let that go. Okay, so I've just um, finished that, and it has built successfully, so I'm finding it in RPMs slash no arch slash trashy dash 251 no arch RPM. So in theory now, I should be able to do an RPM dash dash install and I am doing that with sudo, uh, no arch trashy RPM, and unfortunately it still gives me failures. It says error failed dependencies slash bin slash sh is needed by trashy, and slash usr slash bin slash env is needed by trashy. So it doesn't see, even for a scripted, uh, scripted language that doesn't require really anything, nothing is defined as a requirement in the spec file. It still, it, it sees that as being as as missing requirements. Even though, I mean, I can do an ls on bin sh, and it is there. I can do an ls or a file on user bin env, and it is there if I spell it correctly. So it's not missing, it's just that the RPM can, that would contain those elements are not found on the system by RPM. Okay, but looking at the RPM command, you see that there is a dash dash force option, so maybe we could try that. RPM dash dash install dash dash force RPMs no arch trashy asterisk RPM. No, still not going to do it. Okay, well, well, we'll turn to the man page then, man RPM. And we'll look around for uh, dependencies. 
And you search around for a little while, and you eventually find that there is an option also uh, that might be relevant called No Depths. Forces RPM to skip dependency checking when installing, uh, I think, or removing packages. So let's give that a go. RPM dash dash install dash dash no depths RPMs no arch trashy asterisk RPM. And it looks like it has installed that package. We can verify it with file slash USR slash bin slash trashy and says yeah that that exists it is a it is a shell script uh, ascii text executable and we can test it out too we can do touch um foobar and then we can do trash foobar and then we do trash dash dash list and there it is foobar we do trash dash dash empty trash list and yeah it's empty so there you go it actually functions it actually does work so the the reality of the situation now that we've gone through the whole process is that the RPM command on Slackware has limited use, at least the way that it would be traditionally utilized, I think. Uh, and and that that is that you could, in theory, use it to install RPMs, absolutely, but only if you tell it, if, if you force it to ignore what it what it was designed to do. Uh, or I, Yeah, I think the impetus for its design was the dependency resolution feature, and so if you turn that feature off and just use it essentially as an unarchiving and installation tool, then yes, you could use that, and that is really good to know about actually because because that that now you know that rpms are in a way potentially available to you on slackware now it gets even better because there are a bunch of tools designed by Patrick Volkerding to make slack to, to make rpms even easier than that to use on slackware and those are rpm and then the number 2 rpm 2 tgz RPM2TBZ, RPM2TXZ, and those are fantastic little applications. I use them very often, and what that does is it extracts an RPM and then turns it into a Slackware package, such that when you install it, it is then, you know, it the, the files and everything that gets recorded in your standard slash var slash log slash packages location. Because right now, if I were to look in slash var slash log slash packages for trashy no it is not there so as far as slackware knows trashy is not installed as far as rpm knows trashy is the only thing installed my install of linux only features a shell script that's that's all that's running this system it's amazing okay so um we can we can kind of verify some things we can look at for instance the database of of rpm so this is the equivalent of, I don't think this is a separate package. Uh, so actually, I guess I should do a, an ls really quick on var log packages to see what I'm supposed to be covering. Yeah, RPM DB is part of, of, of this thing. So that's, that's good. So RPM DB is the database that RPM uses to keep track of all your packages or that that all the are the all rpms that you have installed on your system and the way that you can look at that if you really want it's not quite as beautiful as var log packages but you can do rpm db dash dash export db maybe pipe it through less or most rather and that shows you this um binary database with 
uh, a very nice translation over here on the right in the right column. Um, for the first screenful, it doesn't look all that great, but eventually you'll see actual text that you recognize. So trashy two five one, a saying RM intermediary for the POSIX shell, blah blah blah, and it just keeps going and going and going. So it it is telling you, and and it tells you it does you you see. Uh, the list of packages. So it says trashy 8gz, trashy 2.5 readme.md, trashy.info. So it sees everything, you know, and, and you can, you can see it. You can see all the things that it recorded. It's just not, uh, it, it isn't plain text like varlog packages is, which is a little bit harder to, to parse for sure. And there may be commands in RPMDB that allow you to sort of pull out well I guess there is I mean there's RPM so if we do okay RPM dash QL I think that's uh, I guess I should actually look these look these up so that we know what the heck they stand for so I'll do an RPM dash dash help and uh, the dash Q is for query and the dash L is for list I did know both of those actually but I didn't want to get it wrong so RPM dash dash query dash dash list return, nope, uh, trashy, return, and now it's telling, it, it, it has found the entry for trashy, for the package trashy, and it lists all of the files that we did install, user bin trashy, user man man 8, trashy 8, gz, and so on. All, what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 7 files. So if you're very clever, uh, you could take you could take that output and pipe it to I don't know like a remove or a move or something like that or a trash um, and 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 get rid of the files that got installed on your system just by listing what the RPM put onto your system in the first place. So it's not it it isn't it's it's not unmanageable. This is something that you can work with. Uh, RPM dash dash query dash dash all for trashy that shows us the packages themselves now again as far as RPM knows I only have one RPM installed on my entire system and it is called trashy so I'm getting like one response back on my query through all packages but if I had five packages installed and then I did query all uh, trashy I'd, I'd still only get one response but then if I did something I don't know something uh, something a little bit more or less maybe TR then I would get trashy probably and then I would get maybe TR something like that maybe actually I haven't you know what I don't, I don't know about that point being if you want to find one package you can do a dash dash query dash dash all to search through all packages and then if you want to get a listing of the files contained in that package you do a dash dash query dash dash list and that to and that shows you everything within that that package and there's other stuff too there's um what is it uh is it info or uh nope show am i thinking of dnf i might be thinking of dnf anyway there's other things you can do with rpm uh in terms of parsing that database and if you were to use it frequently then you could you could learn those and and look at them. I don't use it all that much because again, DNF exists and most of what RPM can do, DNF provides a front end for anyway. I have run Slack package on a system that had a sort of a database driven package manager on it before. It was I mean, it worked. It actually worked because Slack package doesn't, you know, it actually looks at the system for what's available, whereas the database does the opposite, it ignores the system and looks at its own database. So running Slack package on a Debian system is totally possible. I, I, 
I spent at least a year, possibly more, running a Debian system on a very, very old iBook, and because that's all that that iBook would run was Debian, and because I don't particularly care for apt, I decided to just port Slack package over to it. And it worked fine. I was quite happy with it. Um, in retrospect, maybe I would have just done package source from NetBSD. Maybe that would have been a more natural fit. But I don't think I really... I, I didn't feel very comfortable with package source at the time. I just decided Slack package, I know. I'll just do that. And it worked. It worked quite well. Doing the reversed, though, is a little bit tough. And because Patrick Volkerding provides RPM2.2 TGZ, I don't feel like there's probably a huge advantage to using the RPM interface directly. The one advantage to it, I guess, is uh, would be these um, the the database functions. If if for whatever reason you thought that was a superior method of tracking things, maybe that would be useful. And if you had a whole bunch of interconnected packages, maybe for some reason that would be useful to you. I I can't think of what that reason would be. Um, but maybe I don't know. Maybe that would be something that you would you would find useful because I mean that is the nice thing about RPM is is the database driven aspect of it, meaning that you can query RPM for something that is required by another thing or something that obsoletes another or conflicts with something else or uh, provides a specific library that sort of thing. So there are some nice kind of um, queries that you can make of RPM and get answers back that might be a, a different process with Slack package or, or may not even exist with Slack package. I mean, once it's installed on your system, you really don't have access necessarily to what it required or what it provides. Well, it does. You have a very good list of what it provides. So I guess of what it would, of what it required to get onto your system in the first place, I guess, would be the the one thing that you you kind of lose with Slack package. I mean, if you've got your build script around, uh, or certainly a, a slackbuild.org file structure, uh, then you have a .info file that lists it. If it's an alien Bob script, it's probably listed somewhere in the script. So yeah, there, there are lots of different ways, but maybe that would be a problem if there are too many different ways. So anyway, RPM, it is a system to manage packages. It's not the system that Slackware uses, but Slackware uses or, or, or enables you to use RPMs through both the RPM system, the RPM build system, and the RPM2 TGZ script, which technically I'm not supposed to be talking about right now because it's not on this list. It's not in the AP package set. So just focus on RPM, RPM DB, and RPM build, and so on. Those are the tools surrounding RPM that Slackware provides. Well, I mean, there are some of the tools that it provides. Technically, Slackware provides quite a lot, um, and I'll, I'm going to read them off really quick to see if they're if they're useful to talk about. There's GenDiff, there's RPM2 Archive, RPM2 CPIO. Now, that's the one that RPM2 TGZ uses, RPM2 CPIO, because that translates the uh, package into the CPIO archive format, which it then uses to grab everything out of. RPM build, we've talked about it. RPM DB, talked about it. RPM graph, let's not worry about it. RPM keys and RPM sign. Oh, and RPM spec. So keys and sign, that has to do with if you're signing the RPM or checking the signatures of the RPM. Uh, it's important, but probably more important if you're packaging and, and actually sending packages out, or if you need to verify the 
um, the authenticity of a, of a package because that's another thing that DNF kind of abstracts away from you is it it imports those keys and and you, you all of the packages that you're downloading and and installing onto your system are being checked and verified against a known good uh, uh, key set like encryption key for digital signatures and then there's RPM spec which is a, a command to, to help you query spec files and then there's RPM spec which is a command to help you query spec files not that big of a deal I kind of wanted to go over spec files and how they work but I'm not going to because I'm kind of running out of time I don't want this to go on forever because like I say RPM has a very limited use case on on Slackware it's really only included as far as I know because of that, those one or two things that RPM2TGZ wants to use in order to make it super easy for you to convert from RPM to a Slackware package. Okay, so a spec file. It is a script with a bunch of macros in it. And by macros, I mean functions that are defined by someone else that you can then reuse in a script. There's a very specific format to a spec file. There is a whole series of linting commands that you that you can do to make sure that your spec file is valid if you ever show a spec file to someone who who makes rpms for a living they will critique it what what's the um what's the expression like uh two days until sunday or something like that they will critique it non-stop they will tell you everything that's wrong with it this is from experience so great Spec files, very strictly formatted, very significant because it, def it, it, it defines the metadata, the requirements, the build requirements, the description, and then the build process, and the change log. This is one thing I really like about a spec file is that it is everything about the RPM in one file. So an RPM really, well, there are exceptions, <laughs> but in theory, a spec file is, an RPM, is a spec file and source code. And that's, in theory, that's all you need for an RPM. Now, in practice, you see other things thrown into an RPM out of necessity because maybe you need a patch or maybe you need, I don't know, some asset that isn't normally bundled with that source code, like a, an icon or, or some form of documentation that really needs to be bundled, but it, it, it isn't, so on. So a spec file, though, it's got everything sort of about that package all in one place, which I, I quite like. And I'm comparing that to, for instance, slackbuilds.org, which splits out a lot of information into like three different files. If you go look at a Slack build from slackbuild.org, there is the Slack build itself, a .info file, which contains sort of like the download location and the maintainer's name and some other information. I'm not entirely sure why that wouldn't be in the in this in the slack build file I, I don't know why they thought that that should be a different thing uh, presumably for some kind of you know uh, predictable parsing um, arrangement but I don't know yeah so it's not in the it's not in the build file and then there's a slack dash desc which is the description of the package and that's yet another file so spec file everything's all in one. And it is kind of that I think to its detriment there are a bunch of macros that if you are not if you're familiar with a shell, the the, the bash script or, or how to use a shell, I should say, then you're familiar with how to build a, a Slack build. You do in the Slack build exactly what you would do in the terminal, basically. That's all it is. I mean there are certain nice things that people do in their Slack builds, the like checking the architecture and and setting the version number with a variable instead of hard coding it and or well they hard code it somewhere, but throughout you know, they they have 
conventions that they do. You'll see conventions in Patrick's uh, Slack build. You'll see conventions in Alien Bob's Slack build. You'll see conventions in slackbuilds.org. But generally speaking, it's a valid Slack build if it's a, a shell script that builds a package and makes it into a Slack package. Whereas uh, the spec file, you, you kind of have to learn RPM because there are macros in there that you won't understand the significance of. They'll just be like percent some command percent or some command and and you won't know what that means so there is a learning curve to just drumming up a spec file but once you've gotten over a very little learning curve you can do very basic spec files the more complex the build of course the more complex your spec file may end up becoming but honestly even for just like for Trashy, because Trashy is built around auto tools, the the build instructions for it are just they're just the auto tools commands, and that's it. You're done. Um, well, you're not entirely done. You still have to list out all the files and stuff like that. There's a bunch of sort of bureaucracy involved in a spec file, but it's it's relatively simple to do a relatively simple RPM. And even if your RPM requires, like if your build requires one or two patches or the incorporation of an external source, it's not a whole lot to learn. Now you start straying away from auto tools and now your build is going to become a little bit more complex because maybe you're going to have to make sure that you've got, I don't know, Mison or Meson, whatever that M-E-S-O-N, and Ninja, those those build tools, or, or maybe it's a Python package and now you have to worry about how that's being done and so on. So it can get complex. And I, I guess at that point, it's just a question of getting to know the different systems. But in terms of learning how to do a spec file, it, it isn't impossible. It's just, it's learning a new format. It's learning a new way of expressing the same commands that you're doing somewhere else in a different way. And I think that's the frustrating part when I'm learning something. If I know how to do it one way, then the mental effort to convince myself that it is then worth doing a different way, there, there's that takes a lot. Because I just think, well, why don't I just not do it as an RPM then? I'll just do it over here, package it up, and then I'll be done. And that's the liberating thing about Slack builds, is because more than likely, if you're at the point of thinking, I want to make a Slack build for something, then quite probably you're familiar with the idea that code can be compiled. And so really, you're just you're automating a thing that you're already doing in the exact same language that you're that you're doing it. That's really, really nice. A big feature of Slack package. And not to be discounted. I'm sure there's a lot of benefits to spec files, but I do wonder if there would be a sort of a market or an audience, I should say, for an RPM format that throws away a lot of those conventions and just says, hey, look, you give me the structure of files as you want it applied to your computer. I will wrap it in an RPM for you. But it just wouldn't work because, you know, all that metadata and stuff has to get recorded somehow, and that's up to you. So that's the RPM command and the RPM structure. It is an interesting way to do things. There are advantages and disadvantages, and on Slackware, I don't think it's likely that you're going to use it, but you can hack around it because it is included in on your distribution. You can use the tools that it provides you to look at RPMs or to disassemble them or to just get around them and convert them into a Slack package. That's it. That's everything. That's RPM. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order OG cast. This has been Klaatu, 
you can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Bob and it would grow into a beautiful tree.